Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good? Okay. Good to be with you all again. Um, for those that maybe are new, um, I know we have a couple new people this uh, spring, uh, and you haven't seen me before. I'm Father Jonathan Rea. I am the chaplain and director over at the University Catholic Center just up the road, uh, which is the Catholic campus ministry at the University of Texas at Austin. So I work with the students that are there and uh, other members of the university community. And we have a lot of uh, students from the UCC who are going through our CIA, and we're partnering with the cathedral. So we're really grateful to the cathedral and uh, the priests here for hosting our students. And uh, always uh, glad to be here and uh, pop in and teach when we can as well. So um, I love talking about the liturgy. Um, Tonight's going to be kind of an overview of liturgy. Um, leading into uh, and, and talking most specifically about the Eucharistic liturgy. And then next week, Father Will, right, is going to talk more specifically about some things uh, around the Mass and a little bit more um, of a zooming in on the Mass. We're going to be kind of the, the 30,000 foot view today, um, but really, really important foundational principles. So to, to do that, we're going to be looking uh, mostly at document of the Second Vatican Council, so Vatican II. Um, and this is actually the first document that the council wrote, the council fathers produced um, on the liturgy. And we're going to talk about why uh, that is and why that's really important. So we're going to, um, the way I want to do this tonight is we're just going to read together. We're not going to read every word on here. Uh, we'll skip around a little bit, but we're going to read uh, some good chunks of, um, a lot of this document is very practical and like, we're going to reform the liturgy in this way, and this book is going to be changed. So this is, we're going to read the vast majority of kind of the um, more theoretical parts of this document. So you'll get a good feel for it. Um, and we'll just kind of take a paragraph or so at a time and stop and comment on it. And then we'll have our um, discussion time and uh, come back for Q&A at the end as we normally do. Sound good? All right. So I'm going to ask you guys to help me out on reading. So um, let's start with... That first paragraph there, number one, this is uh, where the council fathers are listing the goals, the reasons why they're calling an ecumenical council for the first time. Um, well, there was one, uh, there was a Vatican Council one. it kind of got cut short, uh, but this is the first time a council has been called in the history of the church where there's not like a heresy that we're trying to combat. There's not a big like doctrinal question and it's like a new kind of thing. So they're saying, starting out, saying like, why are we calling a council of all the bishops of the church from around the world coming together in Rome? It's a huge deal. So 1962 to 1965, this document comes out December 1963. So let's look at number one. What's, why are they calling a council? Who wants to volunteer? Okay, Seth, go for it. This sacred council has several aims in view. <clears throat> it desires to impact an ever-increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful, to adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times, those institutions which are subject to change, to foster whatever can promote union among all who believe in Christ, to strengthen whatever can help to call the <clears throat> of mankind into the household of the church. The council therefore sees particularly cogent reasons for undertaking the reform and the promotion of the liturgy. Okay, so I think this is a really helpful thing. Um, you guys, uh, I don't know if you've talked about much about Vatican II in other times. You've probably heard things. 
Um, there's a lot of talk now because we're still like really understanding and unpacking the meaning of this council. It takes decades in the church's life uh, at the least. Um, but it's really helpful and it's, I think it's instructive to see why they're calling the council and why in light of these four aims, the first thing they felt they needed to talk about was the sacred liturgy. The very first thing they needed to be talked about. So what are the four goals that they list? Why we're calling a council. Number one, imparting an ever-increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful. So we want to we kind of give a, a, a jolt to, we want to help people in living the Christian life, right? We want to give them more vigor. want to help them to live it in a fuller and, and uh, more robust way, right? That's number one. Secondly, is to adapt to the times. And notice the way that they say it. Adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times, those institutions which are subject to change. Not everything in the church obviously can change, right? But there are institutions that can change. There are, uh, there's a difference famously between the faith itself and the way that we express the faith. And Vatican II says the way that we express the faith is something that needs to adapt to the people that are receiving it, right? The famous philosophical principle that what is received is always received according to the mode of the receiver. So we need to talk about what's happening in the modern world. If you think about the 60s, and the council really kind of was probably about at least a decade too late. They really kind of have in mind like uh, the situation after the Second World War um, that really like something we need to talk about what's going on in our world. It's changing. It's changing fast. And like... Christian nations went to war against each other, <laughs> right? Twice in the 20th century. What the heck is going on? And what are we as a church, what are we as the body of Christ somehow not getting? What are we doing wrong? What do we need to talk about in the light of the way that we relate to the world, right? So this is uh, that second reason, adapting uh, our, our, uh, the expressions of the gospel, right, to the time. Third, they say to foster, what? Union among all Christians. So the fact that Christians are divided is a scandal to the world, right? It's, it's contrary to the express will of Christ, who prayed on the night before he died that all might be one. And so, again, this is one of the reasons. And then fourthly, their goal is evangelization, to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the church. Okay, so strengthening our own Christian faithful, um, adapting uh, our expression of the gospel to the need of the time, the union of all Christians, and calling the whole of mankind into the church. And so they said, we see particularly cogent reasons for undertaking the reform and promotion of the liturgy. So notice what there's, how important that is, right? Particularly that first one, like just to, to give greater vigor to the Christian life. The first thing they turn to is the way that we celebrate the mysteries of our faith. That's what the liturgy is, right? The very first thing the council fathers turn to is the way we celebrate the liturgy. And, and, and please understand before, we're not going to go into the weeds here, but before the council ever talked about, we need to like change the books, we need to change the rites. 
what they said is we need to change hearts. We need to change the way that we as Christians, we as the faithful, the people of God, uh, celebrate and, and, and understand what's going on in the sacred liturgy, right? So the liturgy is the heart of everything that we do. The liturgy is the heart of everything that we do as Christians. Anybody know what the word liturgy means? Yeah. Okay, yeah, it, it, it's slightly different root. Um, it's, it, the Greek is litergos. So it's not actually that, the, it's, yeah, it's not the, not the literary, not that kind of a root. Somebody else had a hand over here? I was going to say the word. Yeah, so it's not the word. It's, it's so, so ergo, ergonomics. Ergon is, is work, right? And litergos, it's the uh, same root as like the, the laity or lay. Um, the work of the people, right? But of is really to be understood in the sense of a work. First and foremost, it means a work on behalf of the people. So the, the light ergos would be like something like we would call today a public works project, like building a park, right? That's a liturgy. It's a work on behalf of the people. So if liturgy is the work on behalf of the people, who is the one who is doing the work, first and foremost? It's Jesus Christ. This is really important for us to understand. The one who does the work of the liturgy is Jesus Christ. And he takes us as members of his body with him in this great work. And this great work is glorifying God the Father and bringing us salvation. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to look at this, but I want you to just first understand that word, liturgy. A lot, oftentimes you hear work of the people, and a lot of times after the council you heard, liturgy is the work of the people, which means like, we need to do church, so we need to like be involved and have banners, and we need to like sing, and we need to do all the things, right? Because liturgy is the work, and we're celebrating ourselves, and let's build the kingdom of God. And it's like, no, 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 that's not primarily what the liturgy is. The liturgy is the work of God, on behalf of his people. And it's a work that we as his people then have to participate in, or else it has no meaning, right? You guys with me so far? Okay, so let's read paragraph two. Who's our volunteer? Paragraph two. You have three seconds to raise a hand or I'm going to call on somebody. Okay, Riker, go for it. For the liturgy, through which the work of our redemption is accomplished, most of all in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, is the outstanding means whereby the faithful may express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. So it's the outstanding means. The liturgy is that through which the work of our redemption is accomplished. The work of our redemption, what Christ did on the cross to save us, what God did more broadly in sending his son made man, to save us through his incarnation, his birth, his miracles, his preaching, most especially through his passion and death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his sending the Holy Spirit, that work of our redemption by which we are saved, we are brought back into friendship with God, is accomplished how? Through what? Sacrifice. Through the liturgy. 
through which the, lit- the work of our redemption is accomplished. The liturgy is how the work of our redemption is accomplished. Like right there, understand what's, what we're saying. Liturgy is not just we're remembering what Jesus did for us. And wasn't it great? It's actually happening to us now when we celebrate the liturgy. Like Christ's death on the cross saves us when we participate in it through the liturgy. Does that make sense? Yes? No? Maybe? Blowing your mind? Good. All right? God is outside of time, right? So, so Jesus' death on the cross that happened 2,000 years ago and thousands of miles away is made present to you and me today in January of 2022 through the sacred liturgy. That's how you and I participate in it. Okay? The work of our redemption is accomplished through the sacred liturgy. That uh, footnote there, I have them all here in case you're curious. That footnote, number one, uh, in blue and in the brackets, that's from one of the prayers of the Mass, um, from what we would now call ordinary time. They used to call it the ninth Sunday after Pentecost, but it's still uh, in our liturgy now as well. Okay, so it's the outstanding means by which we can express in our lives the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. Huge deal. And how is that? Keep going, Riker. So it is of the essence of the church. It is of the essence of the church that she be both human and divine, visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation, present in this world and yet not at home in it. And she is all these things in such wise that in her the human is directed and subordinate to the divine. The visible likewise to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come, which we see. Okay, so let's stop with there. Stop there real quick. Okay, so it's saying that the church is this great mystery, right? That like Jesus himself, who is God and man, the church is both human and divine. Not just a human institution, but the actual body of Christ here on earth, encompassing the saints in heaven, those who are being purified of their sins in purgatory, and all the Christians uh, here on earth. All those who have ever lived, it stretches geographically, stretches uh, temporally throughout time, throughout time and space, right? So it's this great mystery, but it's also visible. Like the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and he lives in Rome, and you can go and you can see him, right? You can read his words, and you can watch him on YouTube, and you know, because we have all these means of communication. So it's visible and invisible. Um, All of these kind of things. So that's a principle that in the liturgy is going to be played out. We express these invisible realities through visible means. There's more going on than meets the eye, but the way that we tap into it is precisely through what meets the eye. Does that make sense? It's a sacramental principle. You guys have talked about this in lots of other ways, right? It's core to what it means to be Catholic is this incarnational principle that gets translated then into the sacraments, that because God chose to become man, the God who is invisible made himself visible. The word, eternal word, expressed himself in human words. That means that he's going to love, he loves communicating himself, communicating divine grace, which is invisible, and the working of grace, 
through visible physical science, right? Fundamental principle in the liturgy. Okay. Um, all right, let's flip over to the next page. We're going to go through a little salvation history here. This is really important. And we see the role that the liturgy plays in God's plan to save the human race. Did you hand up? Yeah. Sure. I understand the liturgy is the work of God through which our redemption is accomplished. Mm-hmm. Did you, what, what were your exact words on the liturgy saves us or we can't be saved? I, I just want to understand that because I'm thinking of like Hebrews 10, for example, where Christ, you know, Christ's sacrifice is once for all and mm-hmm. we don't redo the Sacrifice and not sacrifice. Right. Very important. Yeah. Can you restate what you said? Yeah. So both of the things that you're saying are true. Um, The liturgy, so it's that (laughs) through which, the work of our redemption is accomplished through the liturgy. Right? But it it also was accomplished. accomplished Did I mishear that? It doesn't say only. Because God can work outside of the sacraments that he's set up. Um, but it does say that's how it's accomplished, right? Because what happens in the liturgy is that the sacrifice of Christ once for all, which did accomplish the work of our redemption, that work of redemption is made present to you and me and made effective in our lives through the liturgy. Okay. That makes sense? Does that help? That's Think about it. God being outside of time um, really helps. And so think of the liturgy as, as entering eternity, stepping out of time into eternity, which begins to help you understand why we have, you don't just open the door to the cathedral and walk into the nave. You have this, we call an narthex, right? I don't know what the root of the word narthex is, but uh, anyway. But there's, the idea is there's a tradi- transition from the profane space, the space of the world, profanus literally means outside the temple, um, it, into the sacred space, the nave, which is like a ship, right? Um, and it's the reason why even within the church, there's a division between the nave and the sanctuary, right? Because um, what is eternal is being made present and is coming into the world of time. Yeah, hang on to, because you're, We'll come back at your question in a number of different ways. It's important, though. Yeah. Good. Okay, who wants to read for us? Number five. Paragraph number five. Okay, go for it. Uh, Salvation history. God who wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, 1 Timothy 4. Who in many and various ways spoke in, in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Hebrews 1.1. When the fullness of time had come, he sent his Son, the Word made flesh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, who preached the gospel, preached the, the gospel to the poor. Sorry, <laughs> that's a typo. To be a bodily and spiritual medicine, a mediator between God and man. For his humanity, united with the person of the Word, was the instrument of our salvation. Therefore, in Christ, the perfect achievement of our reconciliation came forth. And the fullness of divine worship was given to us. 
that quote, footnote 11, that's a quote from um, a very early, uh, what we would take call a missal or a, a sacramentum, a sacram- sacramentary, um, called the Leonine. So from the time of Saint Leo, Pope St. Leo the Great. Um, so what, fourth, uh, fourth century, um, fifth century, 400s. Um, so um, what are we saying? God wills that all men be saved, come to knowledge of the truth. He sends his son. And the way that Jesus saves us is through his humanity, united with the person of the word. It's the instrument of our salvation. Okay, so again, you see the invisible, uniting itself to the visible, acting through it, right? Let's keep reading. You want to read one more paragraph? Uh, the wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. He achieved his task principally by the Paschal mystery of Paschal, Paschal mystery. By the Paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and the glorious ascension. Whereby dying, he destroyed our death, and rising, he restored our life. For it is from the sight of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacraments of the whole church. Okay, what's the allusion there? It was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. In other words, the church comes forth from the side of Christ as he is, lying, is hanging dead on the cross. What is it, Suzanne? Blood and water. The blood and water flowed out. Uh-huh. And blood and water is uh, the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. So the two sacraments that make and sustain Christian life. So the church is seen as coming forth from the side of Christ. Who else came forth from the side of someone while he was asleep? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you're getting to something really, really important. Mary. Eve comes forth from the side of Adam. Remember that first creation, the second creation story in Genesis, right? God puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes out his rib, forms it into a woman. The church with eyes, mystical eyes of faith, looks at Jesus on the cross, dead, the soldier piercing his side with the lance, blood and water flowing out. This is why St. John makes such a big deal about it. Like the eyewitness has seen it and his word is true, right? He's saying what happened there was the church was being born from the side of Christ. His passion and his death, and after that his resurrection, is a source of Uh, the life of the church. Okay, so God achieves this task, fulfills everything he promised in the old covenant through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. Okay, so now paragraph six, the story of salvation continues. Yeah. represents, you know, the cleansing of sin for everybody, and then the water would also purify. Yeah, so, um, sure, so the blood of Christ on the cross is what cleanses us from sin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it'd be a sign of our, yeah, being cleansed. Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. Good, so let's keep reading. The story, the work of salvation, the salvation history, it continues now. So Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven is not the end. This is where the liturgy is going to come in. Who wants to read for us? Someone from these back two tables. 
Number six, yeah. Just as Christ was sent by the Father, so also he sent the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. So notice the sending. God sends his Son. The Son sends the apostles, fills them with the Holy Spirit, who is also sent from the Father and the Son. Okay? And this he did. This he did that by preaching the gospel to every creature, they might proclaim the Son of God by his death and resurrection, and freed us from the power of Satan and from death, and brought us into the kingdom of his Father. Okay, so this is what the apostles are going forth proclaiming. This is one way of stating the gospel. The Son of God through his death and resurrection, has freed us from the power of Satan and the power of death, and he's brought us into the kingdom of his Father. Okay, and keep going. The purpose also was that they might accomplish the work of salvation which they had proclaimed by means of sacrifice and sacraments around which the entire liturgical life revolved. Okay, don't miss the importance of what's just, what was just said. Okay, so Jesus sends the apostles after Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, to preach this gospel, right? Is that all that they're meant to do? No. It's not, it's not all that they're meant to do. They're also meant to accomplish the work of salvation that they proclaim. So they proclaim, hey, this is what God has done for you. Here is the offer of salvation. It's open, right? People are called to respond to that gospel by repentance by placing their faith in Christ. And then what happens when the, when the apostles, when the Acts of the Apostles, when they preach, when Peter preaches on Pentecost and people hear the gospel, they're cut to the heart, what do they do? They get baptized. It leads to a sacrament, right? Look what they're saying. His purpose was they might accomplish the work of salvation which they proclaimed by means of sacrifice and sacraments around which the entire liturgical life revolves. It's not only about the proclamation of the gospel, but the actual work of salvation is accomplished by means of sacrifice and sacraments. The whole liturgical life of the church is those two things, sacrifice and sacraments. Do you guys, do you understand the principle there? So the apostles are preaching the gospel, but then that message of the gospel is becoming real in the lives of the people who hear it because the apostles then celebrate sacraments for them. They baptize them. And the apostles are the first bishops, so they also celebrated the Eucharist. And people are fed with the body and blood of Christ. The sacraments are the way in which the gospel uh, has its effect in us. And it's the way, they're the way in which our redemption is accomplished. So now keep reading there, and he's gonna, it's going to talk about all of these uh, different examples of sacraments. Keep going. Thus, by baptism, men are plunged into the paschal mystery of Christ. They die with him, are buried with him, and rise with him. They receive the spirit of adoption as sons, in which we cry, Abba, Father, and thus become true the words whom the Father seeks. So they're saying what happens in baptism is we're entered into, we enter into this paschal mystery of Christ. We become sons, right? It happens not just through an act of faith. It happens through baptism, through water being poured and words being said, right? Okay, keep going. In like manner, as often as they eat the supper of the Lord, they proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Okay. The Eucharist, right? 
We're proclaiming the death of the Lord. The, the Paschal mystery of his death and resurrection is happening in me when we celebrate the Eucharist, right? When I partake in the Eucharist. Okay, keep going. For that reason, on the very day of Pentecost, when the church appeared before the world, those who received the word of Peter were baptized. That's what we just said, right? Peter preaches, people respond by receiving baptism. And they continued steadfastly in the teachings of the apostles and in the communion of the breaking of bread and in prayer, praising God and being in favor with all the people. From that time onwards, the church has never failed to come together to celebrate the Paschal mystery, reading those things which were in all the scriptures concerning him, celebrating the Eucharist in which the victory and triumph of his death are again made present, and at the same time giving thanks to God for his unspeakable gift in Christ Jesus, in the praise of his glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, notice that little quote there, Acts 2, uh, 40, well, it's mostly 42 that they're quoting. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles, and in the communion of the breaking of the bread, and in prayers, praising God and being in his favor with all the people. It's a description of the Christian life, one of the earliest descriptions of the Christian life. And notice, breaking bread and the prayers, the liturgy, the sacraments, is right there at the heart of it. They're not just having Bible studies. They're celebrating the sacraments, right? For the very beginning of the church, this was there. Certainly, they're studying the word, the teaching of the apostles, Right? But they're, they're participating in the sacramental life of the church. Okay? You guys good so far? Is this starting to connect? Okay? Let's look, turn the page, let's look at number seven. Somebody from this table want to read for us? Okay, great. Christ's presence in his church. To accomplish so great a work, Christ is always present in his church especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering to the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross, but especially under the Eucharistic species. By his power, he is present in the sacraments, so that when a man baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. He is present in his word, since it is he himself who speaks when the holy scriptures are read in the church. He is present, lastly, when the church prays and sings, for he promised, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay, thank you. We'll stop there. Okay, so Christ is always present in his church, especially in the liturgy. And notice what it describes. All the places that Christ is present in the Mass. How many of you have been to a Mass with incense? Raise your hand. Probably everybody, right? Okay, think about for a second, what are the things or people that receive incense in the liturgy? First of all, why do we use incense? What does incense symbolize? Hmm? Say again? The glory cloud. Oh, yeah. Um, yes, certainly, like the cloud of glory in the Old Covenant. Uh-huh. What is offering incense to something or someone? What does that mean? Prayers rising to God. Uh-huh. Think outside of even Christianity. To offer incense, what does it mean? Respect and cleansing. Respect? It's more than respect. It's worship. 
Offering incense is an act of worship, right? You burn incense before an altar if you're a, if you're a, a, a Roman, right? There's, or Greek. And there's, there's statues all over. You offer incense, right? Um, it's an act of, of worship, right? And so the three kings offering frankincense along with gold and myrrh, that frankincense signifies that this child is God because incense is offered in worship of God. Okay, so think about the things or people that receive incense in the liturgy. Who or what are they? Right at the very beginning, ordinary form and extraordinary form, something is incensed. Yeah? The altar. The altar. Uh-huh. Why the altar? It's a place where the sacrifice takes place. It represents Christ himself. That's why it's meant to be solid, right? Christ the rock. Um, okay, what else? Uh-huh. The priest himself is incensed at that point in the extraordinary form. In the ordinary form, it's not until the offertory. Yeah, the priest who is in the person of Christ offering the sacrifice. What else? Yeah. The priest isn't incensed until after in the extraordinary form. Um, but the book itself, the words of Christ and the gospel. So the word. Uh-huh. Good. What else? Everybody, uh-huh. But before that, think about the offertory. The helpers, the altar. Yeah, before that. Mm, not the tabernacle, actually. The tabernacle is never incensed. If the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, the Blessed Sacrament is incensed. It's the cross. It might look like the priest is incensing the tabernacle. We're actually incensing the crucifix. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just like, he's turning that way and incensing it. Very understandable. Very understandable. It's the crucifix. A sign of Christ, right? But also the gifts on the altar. Remember, there's this. There's a whole kind of ritual for it. Um, it's, the prayers are about our prayers rising uh, up to God. But it's the gifts, the altar and the gifts that are placed upon them, which, of course, become the body and blood of Christ, um, which can also be incensed, you know, at, at uh, Eucharistic benediction. So Jesus in the presence, uh, present to us in the Eucharist, right? It's one uh, place that incense is given. The priest who is offering the sacrifice in the person of Christ. The word where Christ speaks to us, preeminently in the Gospels that are his very words. And the last thing that Adam said, the people. Right? So this is really important. What does that mean when you're getting incensed, when the deacon or the server comes out and incenses you at Mass? What is he doing? Is he giving you a blessing? No, he's not giving you a blessing. It's almost exactly the opposite. He's acknowledging that God is present in you. He is reverencing you as the living presence of Christ, as his body. Does that make sense? People are always like, oh, I'm receiving a blessing. No, it's like we're reverencing Christ in you. It's one of the places where Christ is present in the liturgy. In his church, what we said, when the church prays and sings, right? When, as he said, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Okay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that quote, um, number, the blue number 20, that's actually a quote from the Council of Trent um, in the 1500s. So it says, the same is now offering through the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross. 
Okay, so this is really important. What happened on the cross is Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice of praise to God the Father, right? Gave God glory, first of all, and it was the source of salvation for us. So God was glorified, we were sanctified through Christ's offering of himself on the cross, right? On Calvary 2,000 years ago. What happens in the Mass is that that same sacrifice, that same act of worship to God and redemption for us is made present, and it's made present in an unbloody manner. Calvary was bloody. It's being made present. Again, we're not offering a new sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice that's being made present, but it's being made present in an unbloody manner. So what happened on Calvary? Christ offered himself to the Father. What happens in the Mass? Christ, in the person of the priest, offers himself in the Eucharistic species, the bread and wine that become his body and blood, offers himself to the Father. It's the same thing that's happening. Jesus is offering himself to the Father. On the cross, at Calvary, it looked like this. At Mass, it looks like this. Jesus offering himself to the Father. Does that make sense? I'm glad you asked about that. That's tremendously, tremendously important. It's the same sacrifice. The Luther and the Reformers were offended because they thought we're offering, we're sacrificing Christ again and again. Fundamental misunderstanding. It's the same sacrifice that's being made present again because we are, sac- we are flesh and blood. We're, in, we're sacramental people, if you will. The way God made us is the way that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago can become real for you and me. We can tap into the grace from it. Because what happened then? God was glorified. Jesus gave perfect worship to his Father, and he saved us. Today, when you and I go to Mass, you and I, as the body of Christ, can also join with Jesus in offering perfect praise to the Father and can be saved today and receive the saving effects of his cross today. And that happens through the liturgy. Does that make sense? Because the beautiful thing about the liturgy, what's different, is, is it's not just Jesus in the person of the priest offering himself to the Father. Who is the body of Christ? When we say the body of Christ, we don't just mean the little host that we say body of Christ, amen, right? How else do we use that phrase, the body of Christ? Who's the body of Christ? We are. So Jesus offers himself to the Father through the priest in the Eucharist. This is why we say, both forms of the, of the liturgy, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. What's your sacrifice? What's your sacrifice? What are you coming to offer to God when you come to the Mass? Ourselves. Yes. It's the only thing you and I have to give to Him that He doesn't already have. What do you give to, to a God who has everything, right? You give him your heart. It's the one thing he can't take from us, right? He, the only way he can have it is if you and I give it to him. That's what your sacrifice is, is we come and we offer our lives to God in and through the sacrifice of Christ that's being offered on the altar. Jesus is offering himself through the ministry of the priest, and you and I are meant to come along with him. Yeah. 
I don't know a lot about this, but I've noticed that like the Latin mass, like giving like the major percent why people want to be sure. The people that are I don't know what they're called, the people that are helping like they kiss this uh the vestments, yeah, yeah. altar servers, sure. Uh, so, so why is there a difference? And then also, like, what? How do we understand like what the priest is doing that's unique, and like how that's similar to what we are all doing being there? Or yeah, it's no, it's a good question. Um, how do we understand that? I would say there's there's, there's a possibility of. Um, Overemphasizing one to the detriment of the other. Um, sometimes at certain places before Vatican II, there was a perception of people that, you know, the priest is doing the important work. My job is just to pray, and I'm going to go and receive communion afterward. But like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm I don't know exactly how to join myself to what's going on. Um, but then sometimes after the council, you had. Priests who just, well, we're all just together and we're all just, I'm not anything special. And it's like, you know, instead of giving you a blessing, I'm just going to say, may Almighty God bless us. And just kind of totally um, downplaying his role as mediator. Um, the reality is the priest is the mediator, um, but it's, it's all of our hearts that God wants, right? Um, and so the priest is there um, bringing the sacrifice of all of the people to God, Right? And our job, if we're doing it well, is people have are coming with a sacrifice to offer and know how they're supposed to offer it. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. And so um, during the um, norm, ordinary form mass, the priest, they change it so that the priest um, is like facing the people most of the time. Right. But in extraordinary form, the priest is facing the altar almost all the time except for a few key moments, what are the key moments where the priest will like face the people briefly? When he's speaking to the people. Okay. Yeah. When he's speaking to the people. Which is why it's important in the ordinary form to recognize that even though we might be facing you, listen to who we're speaking to. I actually make a concerted effort never to look at the people when I'm speaking to God. Um, I purposely look up or down at the altar. Um, the, mo- the vast majority of the liturgy, we're speaking to God. Right? And it's... it's arguably clearer in the extraordinary form when you're facing <laughs> facing this way, along with the same direction as the people, when we're all addressing God. So yeah. yeah, it's important, again, it's important to know who you're talking to, what you're doing in the liturgy. All of us, to know what we're doing and why, right? Okay, a couple things quickly, um, and then we'll do some discussion. So look at that next paragraph. Christ always associates the church with himself in this great work wherein God is perfectly glorified and men are sanctified. This great work of his sacrifice of redemption. He associates the church with himself. He brings us with him. And God is glorified. And we're sanctified. That's the goal of all liturgy. Okay? Church is his beloved bride. So he wants to, wants to take us with him in everything that he does. And so the liturgy is considered an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, um, flip over to um, the next page, paragraph 8. You're going to look at that. Um, in your discussion, we're going to look at uh, the book of Revelation and how it is that the earthly liturgy 
is a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy. Okay? Um, so we'll, we'll skip over that for now. Um, look down at paragraph 10, just those things that I highlighted there. The liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. At the same time, it's the font from which all her power flows. See the importance that the church places on the liturgy. The liturgy, therefore, and especially the Eucharist, from the Eucharist, as from a font, this is the bottom of the page, those other bold words, grace is poured forth upon us, and the sanctification of men in Christ and the glorification of God, toward which all the other activities of the church are directed as toward their end, is achieved in the most efficacious possible way. The most important that we do, the most important thing that we do as a church is celebrate Mass. The reason that we're able to help the poor, the reason we're able to teach and have hospitals and, and send missionaries to foreign lands and preach the gospel, the reason that we're able to do that and the power to do that flows from the liturgy. And ultimately, all of those other things have to direct people eventually back to the liturgy or else we're just like an NGO, right? Everything, the heart of everything that we do is the liturgy. Right? Because the liturgy is the place where everything that God did to save us is made present. You see how it's like it's, it's literally impossible to overstate the importance of the liturgy. Right? Because it's everything. It's, it's absolutely everything. Okay? Flip to the next page there really quickly. Um, we'll look at number 11 there and 14. In order that the liturgy may be able to produce its full effects, it's necessary that the faithful come to it with proper dispositions, that their minds should be attuned to their voices, and that they should cooperate with divine grace lest they receive it in vain. So what does the church desire? 14. That all the faithful should be led to that fully conscious and active participation in liturgical celebrations, which is demanded by the very nature of the liturgy. It belongs to us as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a redeemed people. It's our right and our duty by reason of our baptism. Okay? I'm going to skip that beautiful paragraph on the Eucharist. Father Will, I'm sure we'll use it uh, or something like it next week. Um, but let's look at 48 and then we'll go to a break. Paragraph 48, that last thing there. Somebody want to read for me? Sean, go for it. Number 48. The church, therefore, earnestly desires that Christ's faithful, when present at this mystery of faith, should not be there as strangers or silent spectators. On the contrary, through a good understanding of the rites and prayers, they should take part in the sacred action, conscious of what they're doing, with devotion and full collaboration. They should be instructed by God's word and be nourished at the table of the Lord's body. They should give thanks to God by offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him. They should learn also to offer themselves through Christ the Mediator. They should be drawn day by day into ever more perfect union with God and with each other, so that finally God may be all in all. All right. There's a lot in there. This is what the church wants. Christ's faithful, present at this mystery of faith, should not be there as strangers or silent spectators, just watching while Father does his thing. Right? It's not Father's thing, it's our thing. What do they want? Through a good understanding of the rites and prayers. It's really easy now because you have, we have hand missiles. You can follow along, right? And there's explanations and we have classes. Like there's lots of resources to know what's going on, okay? 
They should take part in the sacred action conscious of what they're doing with devotion and full collaboration. Collaboration to labor with, to work with the priest in this work of offering sacrifice to God, offering glory to God, right? That's the work that you and I are called to participate in. So to be instructed by God's word, be nourished at the table of his body, give thanks to him. And then look at this. By offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him, they should learn also to offer themselves. That's the whole purpose of the Mass. Like we said earlier, right? My sacri- Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours. Right? This is, I think, one of the genius uh, um, changes that the Council made. So this, this little dialogue, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. And you say, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. Notice that. God is glorified, we're sanctified. There it is, the two ends of the liturgy. For the praise and glory of his name, for our good, and the good of all his holy church. The salvation of all. Not just all of us who happen to be here in church today, right? But notice that dialogue before the council, I'll say it in English, it was in Latin, but what it looked like was this. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. And then the server would whisper, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. And it was all in Latin. That phrase is like one of the most important phrases in the liturgy because it's like the whole thing that's happening, right? Geniusly, I think the council said that, litur- that dialogue is going to be out loud. And you're going to know what the priest is asking you to pray for, not just in general pray, right? But pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours, because you have a sacrifice, by the way, will be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And then, we, and then you actually make that prayer, right? That dialogue being out loud, I think, is a great example of one of the things the council wanted to reform. Why it was done that way before, don't ask me. I've never been able to hear a good answer for it. Maybe somebody knows. Um, but that's one of the things I think the council was saying, okay, that's a little weird. Why are we doing that, Right? Um, But the point, my point is not primarily about the reform. The point is those lines are, that's the whole thing. That's the purpose of the Mass. When you and I come to Mass is to learn to offer ourselves to God. Because what saved the world was Jesus, the God-man, offering himself to the Father in perfect obedience and love. That's what saved the world. You and I joining ourselves to his self-offering is what will save us. It happens through the liturgy. And then through us receiving, receiving communion. But you see how it's not just about receiving. Mass isn't just the thing that the priest does so that I can receive Holy Communion, right? It's all of it, offering my learning to offer myself. That's how we're saved. And then that salvation, yeah, he comes into me to do that from the inside out. But you see how it all takes place in the liturgy. We've been talking about the Mass particularly, but the whole liturgy does this. Praying Liturgy of the Hours, uh, the official liturgical prayer of the church, is part of this, part of this great work of Christ, the work of God on behalf of us as people. Okay? Cool. Let's look at, uh, for your discussion time, on the back page there, you have a quote from... 
St. Justin Martyr, very, very early. This is the year 155 A.D. in the Catechism. Um, I want you to first read, before you read that, I want you to take your Bibles and read some selections here from the book of Revelation, which is right at the very end. Chapter 4, all of it. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. In chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Okay? So these selections from the book of Revelation. Talk about what you notice. Talk about what maybe reminds you of liturgies that you have uh, been a part of. And then talk about, read, read together that selection from St. Justin Martyr, which is a description of uh, how the Mass was celebrated in the year 155 AD in the city of Rome, um, or in the Roman Empire, and talk about what similarities you notice to Mass today. What similarities, what differences. Okay? Very good. Any... Uh, Insights from your table that you want to share? What did you notice in Revelation? What's going on in heaven? They're just sitting around on clouds playing harps, right? Just making their own music. What are they doing? Celebrating Mass. Yeah, they're celebrating Mass. They're worshiping, right? What are the signs of worship that are there? That, rec- that you recognize here on earth too in the Mass? There's kind of like a dramatic symphony happening. Ah, say more about that. <laughs> like, um, things are happening and moving and things are escalating. And- yeah. There's an upward movement. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, and it's, it, it's in unison, right? Uh-huh. They speak when they speak, they speak with one voice. They cry out with one voice. Right, even though it's all the creatures, right? Um, they're crying out with one voice. Yeah. What else? What other things do you notice? Yeah. The like gospels are present, kind of in the form of the animals. And- yeah, you notice those four living creatures. Those are the signs that the church takes as symbols of the four evangelists. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. you see them a lot of times on the front of books of the gospels, or on the ambo, a lot of places. Uh huh. But, oh, yeah, in the stained glass, yeah, yeah. With the evangelists themselves, yeah, they're also there. We gave your stained glass a shout-out in a different way. I'm talking about how the trees are perfect, because everything depicted in art is that's in the saints. It's all perfected and heavenly, so it's perfect and symmetrical, because it's the new creation, so everything is elevated in the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, beautiful. What else did you notice? Yeah, lots of incense. So much incense. So much incense. Yes. Yeah. People sometimes are like, why do you use smoke? Why are we doing all this singing? Because they do that in heaven, right? It's like, if you don't like it here, you're not going to like heaven very much. <laughs> Get over it, right? <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, they're singing, they're wearing vestments, right? They're clothed in white robes. Are they just standing, or what, are the, what is the posture of their bodies? They're falling on the ground again and again, right? Every time, like the, 
the four, 24 elders are just like casting down their crowns and they're up and I mean, there's a lot of movement, right? Um, there's incense, there's singing, there's this great unison of, of, of praise and glory to God, right? People forget, like, this is the description that we're given of heaven, right? Is, is what happens there. There are descriptions of what it's like kind of visually, but when we hear about what happens there, it's the worship of God, right? And not just kind of gazing at God, but it's, but it's these, these um, descriptions of worship that we have here on earth, right? So in other words, what we're doing here on earth is preparing us for heaven, which will be the worship of God for all eternity. And the center of it is who? And how is he pictured in Revelation? The lamb who's been slain. A lot of times you'll see descriptions uh, or depictions of the mass and it has the lamb and he's sitting on a book that if you look closely has seven little seals, right? It's exactly from this passage. Yeah. What did you notice about Justin Martyr? How did they do things back in 155? Pretty much like we do it now. Yeah. The outline is pretty much the same, right? Except the Gospels were so new, they were still calling them the memoirs of the apostles. I always find that charming. It's the memoirs of the apostles, right? What else do you notice about that? What about, what about their belief in the real presence? What does he say? I actually could have included a further quote. He goes at lengths to talk about how they're no longer ordinary bread and wine. They actually have truly become the body and blood of Christ, right? But it's very clear. They call them the Eucharisted bread and wine. They have the bread and wine over which thanks has been pro- proclaimed, right? And it's truly the body and blood of Christ. Good. Yeah, so b- way back then, the basic structure of the Mass is there, right? It's not just everybody gathering together. There's one who presides over the brethren. There's one who's leading their prayer. We call him the priest, right? Um, the priest celebrant. Um, there are deacons. There's a hierarchy very early on. Um, you can also find this in St. Ignatius of Antioch um, very, very clearly. Um, but it's beautiful to see that the fundamental structure of how we celebrate Mass today has been there since um, this is two generations or so after the apostles. Right? Um, this is very, very, very early. Okay. Um, oh, a little bit more than that, but very early. Three or four generations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. That's before the split, right? Oh, long before the split. Yeah. The first split is with the Orthodox. I mean, there are others, but the first big split is with the Orthodox in 1054. Yeah. So this is a long, long time before that. Yeah. And even in that split, all of the Orthodox and all the Catholics would all agree that this is like a, a, a reasonable testimony of, mm-hmm. of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And the split with the Orthodox was not over the liturgy. We would both acknowledge each other having the body of the body and blood of Christ and that offering offering true worship. Yeah. Cool. I have questions. Yeah, Seth. Let's go Seth first. Uh, like how you said it, like they refer to it as like memoirs of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Would they have had the same view as we do of them being holy scriptures? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the the canon of what was actually what were um, the scriptures wasn't agreed upon yet, um, but it was. I mean, the Old Testament would have been. Uh, they probably they would have almost certainly been reading. I would think from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation that Jesus and the apostles and the early church knew, um, and then the memoirs of the apostles. So, um, like whether they had access to like the letter of Jude, for instance, or the book of Revelation, maybe not. Um, but he's concentrating on the memoirs of the apostles. Yeah. Took a little bit while, a little bit for the canon of the new Testament to be, to be codified. Would they have yeah. considered any memoirs that we wouldn't consider? Um, no. I mean, the, the gospels were pretty, universally agreed upon. Um, yeah, and that's how it was. There was very little debate over most of the New Testament, even long before it was codified. Yeah. yeah. There were some, like James was a little questionable because people were like, oh, this seems like a very different theology than St. Paul. And um, I think like uh, second Peter has a lot of, it's a very different style than first Peter. And so there were things like that where Kind of some of the lesser lesser books were questioned, but that's yeah. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. One more question. Yeah. yeah. Chapter seven, the number one hundred forty-four thousand is referenced. Yeah. And I know Jehovah's Witnesses believe that to be the literal number. Right. Of people getting to heaven. What's yeah. The church's interpretation of that. I mean, anybody who's reading just about anything in Revelation literally is not paying any attention. <laughs> it's such clearly symbolic language. I mean, the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns. That's a weird-looking lamb, <laughs> right? But it symbolizes the fullness of knowledge and power. I mean, like it's, it's standard, like, symbolic language. So 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000 is standard symbology. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, a basic knowledge of the genre would say this is not meant to be taken literally. Yeah. Yeah, countless number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, countless multitude that no one can count. It says that. Yeah, exactly. Good. So let's close as a as a little meditation and a prayer with uh, on that second to last page, the other side from Saint Justin Martyr, paragraph forty seven. It's a beautiful little um, preview of next week um, description of the Eucharist from uh, the Scripture and from Saint Thomas Aquinas. At the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. He did this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again. And so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the Church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet, Paschal banquet in which Christ is eaten, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thank you, God. Thank you guys. God bless you.